welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastured Pig Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Troy. Glad to be here. Glad to get another episode out this month. And um, I have, wow, there's a lot going on. It's like we hit the ground running in January. So uh, first and foremost, what's pending, in fact, I'm sitting here looking down into the, it's the beauty of having elevation. I can look down into the valley and see my hoop house where I have Noel, one of our sows, who is about to pop she's like looks like a huge tick uh her teats are literally dragging the ground and uh, so she is in her farrowing station all by herself and i can see the um i do have a heated creep area set up tested it and and for those of you wondering oh my goodness don't put heat in a barn uh that's the first reason i've got her in the greenhouse or the hoop house so less likely to burn the whole place up but since it's plastic sides and those type of things, there could be an opportunity for her to escape if it would catch. But um, I don't use those hanging heat lights. Um, I've learned too many times that those things are made to fall apart when they get hot. It's like, I, I swear, I think the manufacturer does that on purpose. I don't know if he's pyromaniac or what. But um, So I, I don't use those. I make permanent uh, fixtures that I screw my heat lights into. In fact, um, I think I'll have a video coming out later this week about that. But anyway, so um, so she's ready to go. Hopefully um, she will farrow before we do another episode and I can uh, share some details of that. So I'm keeping our fingers crossed there. Um, also, some additional updates with the uh, Pastured Pig website. I'm excited to say we're ahead of schedule. We were going to launch our business directory when we hit 40 Patreon supporters. We're a couple short of that, but hey, considered a, a late Christmas present. We're going to go ahead and put it out there anyway. Some of you already know and have already entered your information uh, because we posted in the Pastured Pig Facebook group and invited everybody who has a farm that they do some sort of retail sales to come to the directory, come to the website, and enter their information in the directory. So it's really easy to do. Just go to thepasturedpig.com. You'll see business directory, and there'll be a, a link there if you want to enter your information. You just uh, create a username and a password. And the reason why you need to do that is so you can obviously enter the data, but then also gives the opportunity to come back at any time and make an edit. So if something changes, uh, you don't have to come back and re, 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 redo the entry. You can simply just come in and uh, bring up your profile, change your description or whatever service you're offering there. So be sure to check that out. Um, and, and there's the form. I don't say the form's daunting. You know, obviously, it's just I'm just looking for basic overview information about your farm. But feel free to expand in the description as much as you want, um, simply because people need to know. I'm hoping that not only uh, people in the know, the people, those of us that raise pastured pigs are the ones going to be seeing this, but as we do more and more SEO efforts with the website, then the plan is that people just getting into pastured pigs that are looking for breed stock or people actually looking for product in the areas uh, would be able to find this as a resource. So the more information you put out there, the more SEO benefits we get, uh, that type of stuff. So obviously, don't load me up with 10,000 words or anything like that, but but um, do more than a couple sentences of the description of your of your farm or your bio there. And uh, again, you can link to your website, you can link to all your social media. We're, we're doing all of that to, to make sure people can find out more about you. So check that out. So uh, along the same lines as the website, also uh, offer just a, it's a simple little thing, but it's a pig gestation calculator. So um, if our gestation, as Kelly always corrects me, if you want to um, uh, you know, calculate when your uh, sow is or your gilt is ready to farrow and you know that breed date, you can just drop that date in there and it does the math for you and tells you what day to expect your piglets. So check that out. That's actually, I think, in the right margin of, of most of the pages. Uh, also, um, I've mentioned this several months ago and, and hadn't mentioned it since and come back around, but... Uh, I, I would like to entertain and, and extend an offer for anybody who would like to guest blog. 
Um, I don't blog as much as I'd like to. I just did post a, a story today at the time of posting these bumper or recording this bumper. Posted a blog about needle teeth in piglets. Um, but it'd be nice to have some other perspectives. Obviously, I'm writing from my perspective and the research that I do. It'd be nice to have some other voices. Now, to keep uh, everything uh, copacetic when it comes to uh, blogging, uh, there are some guidelines that, that I would need you to follow. But I would love to have uh, you know, one or two people that would want to write. Um, and, of course, we'll share everything about it. Obviously, it, fortunately, there's there's no money in it right now because <laughs> I don't get any money out of it either. But um, but if it's something you'd like to have some of your articles out there, and we'll definitely allow you to plug your farm and, and anything else you've got going on in that process as long as there's you know some good editorial information we're providing. So reach out to me, Troy at RedToolHouse.com, if that's something you're interested in. Okay, so let's get into our interview today. Today, we are going to North Carolina, and we're, we're talking with Magpie Hollow Farms and Josh and Rachel, uh, husband and wife team. And, and I can say, I, I really, uh, I say this with every single interview. I enjoy the interview. There's, there's no question about that. I've yet to have an interview say, well, this was just a waste of time. <laughs> Fortunately, I haven't run into that yet. Um, but uh, with Josh and Rachel, it was, a, it was a nice dynamic having the two of them, your husband and wife tag team in the conversation. And, and you'll pick up on what I picked up on the energy of the two of them. And, uh, and just appreciate their energy and, and just their attitude uh, in, the, in the interview. So it made it for a really uh, fun conversation. And one thing I took away from, there's quite a few things I took away from the conversation, but I really liked one of the key points that I put in my notes here is that, you know, they're, they're in Wilkes County, so there's some topography that's similar to what we have here. So there's some challenges that go with that. But uh, this idea of setting your farm up based on the read of the land and this is you know, kind of a permaculture principle that um, before you do anything major on your property, uh, you, you just got to watch, you got to observe the property, see how it handles you know, the four seasons or whatever seasons you have where you are, and just learn from how the land responds. And then you can kind of see, you know, you, you don't do the square peg into a round hole type of situation and let the land kind of show you what it's going to uh, thrive at and what issues it's going to have. But anyway, I will let them tell the rest of their story, and I'll catch you guys on the backside. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. Today, we are headed due south. We're going uh, down into North Carolina to Wilkes County, a really neat place. Been there several times. And we're going to hang out with Magpie Hollow Farm, whose owners are Josh and Rachel Kearns. Welcome, y'all. Hey. Glad to be here. All right. Well, in in the uh, in the aspect of full disclosure, I, I want to thank the Kearns for coming back on because they were scheduled earlier, and some dummy got his calendar all messed up and and didn't show up for the interview. But they have graciously come back and, and agreed to try again. So appreciate you all doing that, and apologize for messing up the calendar there. No worries, man. We're good. All right. So let's let's do this because. Man, there's there's about six different spokes to this wagon wheel that we can go down with what you guys got going on. But let's first start with an overview about Magpie Hollow Farm. So uh, tell, tell me what you got and how you came about this land. You want to do that? Uh, sure. So we have, you know, we've been together for a while. We lived in multiple different states over the years that we've known each other, a good 10 years, I guess. And we've always had this dream of, you know, putting down roots and starting a homestead and kind of like just living off the land a bit, not exclusively, but just, you know, working towards that, um, mostly in anticipation of, you know, not being able to rely on um, the, you know, commercial agriculture and everything in the future, mm -hmm. just kind of prepping, I guess, mm -hmm. for that as a potential, you know, future for for us and for the world basically um and so you know we both have our careers you know where we were in school for a long long time and so we weren't really able to do that um but you know we kind of just somehow the stars aligned and we reached a point in our lives when it was like okay yeah we're ready to to buy some land and and start a farm and it just so happened that that was right before the pandemic hit um the real estate prices were actually pretty favorable at the time and right. we landed this 14 acre lot that 
um, basically had a brand new house on it. It was built in 2018. And um, there were these other outbuildings that were kind of dilapidated. They had obviously been hand built, you know, not to code or anything. And um, dilapidated is also being kind of a, that's sort of a euphemism. So, <laughs> right. yeah. So, I mean, it, it, to many people's eyes, it would be kind of an undesirable piece of property. You know, it, it was overgrown. There were fences, but they were all jumbled up. There was brush growing up through the fences, sometimes even trees growing up through the fences. I mean, just like a, a total nightmare. Um, but we, happened to get a really good deal on it because of that. Cause we kind of saw it as an opportunity, I guess, whereas others would have been kind of driven away. Um, and so we closed on the place in um, February of 2020, you know, a month later, the shutdown happened. Yeah, wow. So part of it was, you know, really just almost a miracle that we landed it when we did, because um, you know, we, as far as our property value and everything, we wouldn't be able to afford it now right. um, just with how property values have changed. But also, you know, with the shutdown and everything, we were able to actually really focus on the land in the beginning um, in those first few months. And I mean, it was brutal. Like we were out dragging brush around, burning pot, huge illegal bonfire, <laughs> brush, pot, brush fires. Um <laughs> And that not not just that, you know, the there was a, a single wide trailer, which actually we still have, um, but it was just almost like a hoarding zone. There there's just like all kinds of stuff, just rubble in the yard. We were digging like fax machines out of the ground. Yeah. Um, we're continually finding things uh, around that are potentially like toxic waste almost. <laughs> but it's it's just like you know, been a slow process getting it cleaned up so that it actually looks, you know, manageable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say the only regret that we have is in those really, really early days. I wish we had taken more pictures mm. of what it looked like because it, you know, it's hard to see your. You don't progress. think about taking before pictures when it looks like a disaster, you know, because you sort of want to not think about that part of it. But yeah, we should have had more before pictures. We have yeah. a few, but. <laughs> But you can, but basically you can just imagine if you just think stereotypical, like rural Appalachian junk pile, right? you know, and you pretty much get the idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, I unfortunately had to live that exact same nightmare about 20 years ago. I know exactly what you're talking about, that uh, you just, uh, you get to the point where it rains hard. You just think, you know, where did that piece of furniture come from? Or where did that tire <laughs> come from? It's just like things are falling out of the sky because you still unearth stuff years later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and of course the pigs now are discovering all sorts of buried treasures out there in the forest exactly. paddocks. Yeah, they're helping us to you know unearth all of the cinder blocks that are buried and things like yeah, all kinds of random stuff. Whole bags of concrete just left out in the rain and and you know just made a bag shaped piece of concrete yeah. basically things like that. Yeah, it's um, amazing. So we got we actually did get some animals pretty shortly after, or I think we even had a goat. Uh, living in the house. Yeah, we were given, we were given a goat before we even closed. Yeah, and we're and uh, you know um, we're of course the pandemic happened and everything goes to Zoom meetings and stuff like that. And I'm like doing Zoom meetings with a little goat with a diaper on running around in the background of the Zoom meetings and That's stuff. Hilarious. And that was a little awkward. But I was like, well, we better get this place because apparently we already have a goat. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, got livestock before you got the farm. I love it. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm a, a veterinarian. I've been in practice in private practice for about five years, mm. graduated from NC State. And as a veterinarian or just anyone in the animal field, it, you just it's a phenomenon where animals just come to you. Um, <laughs> you know, they somebody will be like, I don't know what to do with this animal. It has something wrong with it. Uh, can you just take it? Right, right. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of what happened with that goat. And so he was kind of the seed crystal, I guess, for our herd. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And so anyway, we got, you know, sheep and goats and everything um, to get us started. Of course, chickens and everything. But I think that came a little bit later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we we ran into that a lot too. People wanting to give you animals. They found that you got a farm, and, and a lot of our friends are urban, and 
They're like, hey, I've got uh, a chicken or I've got this or I've got that. And I, I was able to slow that down a lot by just saying, yeah, you, you can bring them out. We'll take them. And, and anything you bring me, I'll eat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because we. Yeah, that's the understanding at our place, too. Yeah, is we're, that. we're a protein farm and. And people would even stop asking for to bring me cats because I would uh, I would just tell them that yeah <laughs> any protein is is not off limits. So. That hasn't been an issue for us. I'm really the only animal issue I have is I'm super allergic to cats. So we're not we're not a, a cat sanctuary. But other than that, yeah, we get some cast offs and stuff. And <laughs> Rachel's Rachel's the regulator of all that, and I'm the like you know let's save every animal, let's save every tree, let's you know let's rebuild Noah's Ark or something out here. And right. Rachel's like, all right, we're going to have to be a little bit realistic about what you're talking about there. So that's something that'll kind of come up as we're talking about like the management and everything of pasture raised animals, because I like from a standpoint of a veterinarian, I feel like that's one of the biggest issues that we have with managing these animals, especially sheep and goats. Um, but pigs too. It can easily get out of hand, kind of like rabbits, you know, their litter size is really big and you can overstock, you know, your, your paddocks pretty easily. And I think that's like one of the biggest challenges I think to maintaining their health yeah. in those kinds of systems. Yeah. So yeah. just trying to manage, you know, obviously like culling individuals, determining your culling parameters and everything, but also, you know, just keeping your herd size low so that you can not only pay more attention to everyone as individuals, but also you know, you're not stretching your resources too far. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So I, I, I'll back up just a second and ask, so were you all in, um, I, I know because of pre-screen stuff that uh, Josh is a West Virginia boy, but were you all at this time before the pandemic found the property, were you all in this neck of the woods or do you all decide, Hey, we want to retreat to more rural area? Uh, it's kind of a complicated story, but it's sort of yes and sort of no. I was working at NC State University in Raleigh, so I was actually living in a little downtown apartment. And Rachel had a vet, uh, had a vet job at a different clinic, um, where she did a lot of uh, a lot of farm calls and a lot of large animal work. And um, I think it was one of the, was, you should let her talk about it, but uh, uh, it was a ton of experience, but extremely demanding hmm. and could induce burnout pretty quick. And so kind of what brought us specifically to Wilkes County was that she got a job at a clinic here in, in North Wilkesboro. And it was uh, just a better job setup in terms of the pay and the hours. And it was a little less uh, crazy making. And so that's kind of what drew us to this specific area. Yeah. 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 That's yeah, nice. So, you know, we were, living together in Raleigh I was in vet school there in Raleigh while Josh was finishing up his PhD and then we kind of spent some time apart because I it wasn't going to work out for me to stay in Raleigh hmm. basically and you know just other life circumstances we just spent you know a few years apart and then it kind of again the miraculous thing is that we we decided to get back together and and got this land and everything it just you know, I don't know that I could have predicted it, but no. also I couldn't have planned it any better. You know, we we had to kind of spend that time apart to, um, you know, get our lives and our careers established. And then by the time we were ready to come back together and say, yes, this is where we want to put roots down. It it just the stars aligned, basically. Hmm. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but I would say, you know, uh, that practice, you can kind of think of it um, as like the I don't know if you're familiar with James Harriet, there's the British veterinarian who's written a lot of books. Um, mm -hmm. uh, All Creatures Great and Small is oh, the yeah. one that people love yeah. the most. And um, so that's like the classic, you know, rural veterinarian um, sees just about anything. And, um, you know, I always said when I worked at that, that veterinary clinic, um, if a dinosaur walked in the door, I would be its vet. <laughs> like just any, any and everything. Um, and, you know, I, I would say I, I didn't really enjoy the large animal work there. Um, I always said that I love my truck time. You know, I love driving to the different farms, just seeing everyone set up and, and all of that. Um, the on-call was really hard. Mm. Not not necessarily the large animal on call, but just being on call in general, as much as I was. Um, I was also doing small animal on call. 
And being a rural clinic, you know, we're often cheaper for a lot of things than um, other clinics in the cities and everything. And I was having people drive actually pretty significant distances with their animals. Like say they'd have their dog who's in labor, you know, they were driving like almost four hours or more with their dog in labor to come and have me do the C-section. Oh, gracious. Rural Northwest North Carolina. So that, that kind of thing will burn you out pretty quick. I I wouldn't say that the large animal work is actually what may put me close to burnout, but you know, I, the, the practice situation I'm in now is actually much more favorable for work-life balance. And I would say that we wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to spend as much time or attention on the farm aspect um, as I, you know, if I were still in that other practice scenario. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I do also feel though, and this is kind of something that I've thought about recently, just, you know, would I want to go back into private practice and do like ambulatory large animal medicine? And I've always had kind of a alternative, um, tilt to my, uh, my food animal medicine training. Like I've always been interested in, you know, non-commercial agriculture, just like kind of smaller scale farms um, and things like that. And so just thinking about like, where can I make the biggest impact? You know, I, I don't think that being an ambulatory vet um, for a large animal, even though that's obviously high demand, um, especially for smaller systems, but um, I just don't know that that's necessarily where I can make the biggest difference. Mm. Yeah. That I may, you know, kind of more on the um production side like how do you set up your system so that it's you know more uh sustainable and you don't need to call the vet as often you know how do you prevent disease when i'm showing up on an emergency basis and having to kind of triage and you know put out fires and everything it's not really a good time for me to intervene and talk about management because it's already too late right right Um, I mean, obviously, sometimes people learn their lesson and then the following year you make changes. But I think from the experience in the veterinary world, responding to those kind of things, I can bring more value to um, producers by just, you know, making suggestions of how to manage to prevent those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's better medicine, in my opinion. It's just not something that you necessarily get paid for. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the phenomenon of veterinary medicine. Unfortunately, when animals are really sick, that's when you get paid. You know, but as like it, you know, kind of consulting on the management side, it's more of a an extension kind of role. Right. It's not yeah. Necessarily, like I could make a living in private practice just doing that kind of consulting work. Yeah. It's like you need a vet retainer. (laughs) You know, that's actually where I feel like I could make the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So let's talk about the farm a little bit. So I know it sounds like there's a a menagerie of animals on the farm, but um, kind of explain what you have and what you're doing maybe at the production level above and and beyond uh, just homestead level food production. Yeah. So above and beyond that is, is, is quite small. We're sort of, we kind of started small. We're trying to grow a little bit. We do have sheep and goats right now. We have about 10 sheep and six or seven goats, uh, something like that. Most of them were actually cast off from Rachel's boss from her place where she had too many animals. So like we're talking about, you know, we get the the cast offs. So we're kind of like the, the island of unwanted toys from that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer movie. Um, and then, yeah, the chickens and ducks and stuff are really that's just for us to have eggs and meat and stuff in the backyard. So that's just a small thing there. And then we started raising Cooney Cooney pigs. Um, that's kind of actually a funny story. Like I was, you know, I was, you know, uh, Hey, you know what we should do? We should, uh, we should raise a couple of feeder pigs in the woods. You know, this is about, um, a year and a half ago. And Rachel's like, well, I like these Cooney Cooney. They're smaller. They're supposed to be easier to manage. They seem like a good place to start. You know, I'll look around on the marketplace and see if I can come up with some piglets or something like that. And then, uh, and most days I'm working from home, either outside on the farm or inside doing computer stuff or whatever. And she just texted me at one point and she said, okay, hook up the trailer and drive over to this place. I got a deal on four Cooney Cooney pigs from this guy's trying to get rid of them. So I drive down there and pick them up and it's, and they're pretty much full grown three sows and a boar. Hmm. And I'm like, okay, all right. 
And I didn't even have a place really prepared for them to go. So we had a kind of smaller section of the sheep and goat pasture. I had to just kind of dump them off in there, um, you know, for the time being. And so, you know, it, it was like, okay, we'll go and do a couple pigs or whatever. And uh, now we got four. All right. And they're pretty big. And we got to figure out, I got to hurry up and get the pig area done to get them out of the sheep and goat area where they're not really supposed to be. And, um, and 10 days later, uh, we had piglets. And I was like, whoa, apparently that sow was pregnant. Wow, that's wild. Okay, so if we went from two pigs to 10, you know, in like 10 days. (laughs) Crazy. I was like, wow. And then uh, I'm working on the pig pasture on this. So so what we wanted to do was uh, we had an area set aside that was like a really overgrown area where there's lots of junk and lots of down trees and vines and brambles and all this kind of stuff and we're like okay we're going to kind of clear this up as much as we can and put a fence around it and build a little shelter area and like that's going to be the sort of home base pig area and that was my summer project working to kind of get that all put together um and so this was all happening at you know from in april and may and then middle of the summer um i discovered another litter of piglets that unfortunately had died the the other another sow was pregnant and had and i don't know if her pigs were dead when when they were born or if they got killed by the boar or I don't know what happened. She didn't nurse them. I don't know. I was like, wow, I guess we had two pregnant sows. That's wild. Um, and then of course, whatever, six weeks later, we had another batch of piglets. <laughs> so all three sows were pregnant when we got them and we didn't know that. Wow. And, and it took all summer to kind of get our little pig area set up and, and, and get them down there. And, um, and uh, then of course the sheep and goat paddock was kind of trash because it wasn't, it wasn't really designed to have all those pigs stomping around in there. And so then I'm like, okay, well, I've got a good um, learning example of a heavily overgrazed, you know, area, nuked area. Uh, how do I start to to bring this back? You know, the other thing too is I guess we should mention in terms of our operating principle is pretty much in terms of savings and stuff like that, we dumped everything into the place just to get in the door to get a down payment and to have a little bit of startup money to get a few tools and to some materials to fix stuff up. And then basically since the beginning, it's been like, you know, we don't have a big pile of money just to throw at everything. So we have to kind of work small. We have to work incrementally. We have to like think about how we can repurpose materials or whatever. So it's all so, and which I, which like, I I actually prefer that, even though it can be definitely stressful where we're always like, okay, do we have enough money to do this thing that we need to do? But to me, like, I really am interested in trying to be a part of um, creating a regenerative economy in Appalachia. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much potential, so many things that could be done here, but the area has been economically devastated for so long and, you know, it's great if you got a lot of money and you can just throw money at stuff and you can make a beautiful place and, you know, and, and but, you know, that's not something that's going to be accessible to other people coming along and saying, oh, that's clever. I'd like to do that. They'll say, well, yeah, you can do that. You're rich. You got a lot of money. You can do it. But we're trying to provide examples of like, OK, you know, if you use resourcefulness and creativity and you can improvise and innovate and use a little bit of hillbilly engineering, then, you know, this is what you can do. And so part of what we're hoping to build out a little bit more with our, our newsletter, our Substack newsletter website and stuff is like, okay, here's like a little case study. What you can set up if you have this much marginal land uh, and what do you need in terms of materials and upfront costs? And, you know, what does it take? How long does it take? What are the inputs to the system? What, what does it look like to start to generate a small return? You know, so we're kind of working towards those things, but we'd like to create little educational modules that show, you know, like, we're not if we're if we're even preppers we're not the kind of like you know get a bunch of cans of beans and ammo and build a, a walled compound and hide behind it and wait for the world in we're more like okay we see a lot of different systems that are unsustainable and are going to break down over time and people are going to be looking around wondering okay well what do we do now you know if the food system i mean we are obviously in a major inflation uh crisis right now grocery bills are going up and all that kind of stuff. And it's becoming more and more attractive. Like, well, yeah, you could produce a lot of what you consume at home. You know, it takes a little work, but here are the steps to get involved and you can kind of incrementally build on it. So we're really trying to be like sort of a, a learning center and integrated with the, especially the local food economy in this area 
and you know and kind of with the first idea of like okay produce for ourselves first and our friends and family and kind of build up slowly from there figure out what the the small economic opportunities might be around this area you know like we're 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 from i'm from west virginia rachel's from from virginia but we're not from specifically right here and you know how it is like if you're from the next county over you're an outsider right so we're right we're outsiders you know even though we're or whatever um and you know it's not like i can land on this piece of land and go okay i'm doing these five things and it's all going to you know turn into like you know an entrepreneurial opportunity or something like that so we're trying to get connected with other people in our county and in our region that are interested in similar things and figure out like where the opportunities are and to not compete with other people that are doing this kind of thing but think about how can we do something that's complementary to what they're doing? Cause we're not, we're not trying to undercut or compete with this kind of stuff. We're trying to make more of it and collaborate with people around our area. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. A little, so we're, you know, it's, it, it's real experimental and, you know, I mean, we could talk about some of maybe the different specific elements of what we're doing, but, um, but a lot of it's just, I mean, like, as you know, like the only way to learn this stuff is just to do it and you just have to go out there and do it. And, you know, try not to make mistakes, but you're still going to make mistakes. And, you know, that hands-on learning is like the thing that's the most exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you, man, you so many good points there. And, and the one that really jumped out at me specifically was this idea of, of building a community, but also building into a more sustainable model for people, like you said, that don't have all the resources. And, and, and I really like what you said, I don't want to just echo it, but but looking at examples where people come in and say, I bought this hundred acres for cash and I'm going to do another hundred thousand, 200,000 into it. And, and I've really turned it into a nice workable farm. Anybody can do this. And you think, well, yeah, anybody that has a wad of cash could, could pull that off. But how do you, how do you really build something that you, if you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, how do you build something where it is um, regenerative and, but it also feeds your family and, and you don't have to have that outlay of cash, but then, having that community in place to say, well, I can, I can uh, escape these mistakes because I'm talking to, to Chuck over at Sheridan Park, which I know is real close to you guys. And Chuck will say, well, hey, you know, we learned the hard way that in this area, in this topography, if you do this this way instead of that way, then you can avoid some headache. So as you establish those relationships and, and build that, and then as you build your customer base, then it's, it's like this little island. And that's how I always try to visualize it in my mind. It's like this little island of, of, of resources that people can look and say, I want to purchase from them or I want to be like them. So you either make the island grow or you sustain the island as people pump cash into your uh, operation because you're selling some of your surplus product. Right. I think Rachel wanted to add on something there. Yeah. I just, um, I guess, you know, talking about the, you know, buying land and, and, you know, getting started up and everything. I think one thing that we've also kind of come across just talking to our friends and everything who are interested in doing this kind of thing is, um, you know, a lot of it, some of it has not really been planned. We just kind of end up with animals, you know, and then we're like, okay, how do we figure out a, a way to keep them, you know, here or whatever. Um, but really, I think that there's also the the planning aspect of like, which species are we going to have? Hmm. You know, because, you know, Sheraton Park, you just mentioned them. I mean, they have a lot more land that we do, than we do. Mm-hmm. So they're able to raise cattle, for mm. example. But like our land, you know, we have 14 acres, but probably when it started, there were only like two that were fenced in. Maximum, that, yeah, yeah. Um, and so naturally it made sense to start out with small ruminants. Um, but the rest of our land is wooded. And so that's why we were thinking, you know, it makes sense to move to pigs for production, for example. And then there's also considerations like what's the water situation like on your on your farm or your land? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have happened to have our pigs at the lowest point in our in our topography of the way our land is laid out. You know, the house is up at the highest point. And then you go down to, you know, the chickens, the garden, and then the sheep and goats, and then the pigs at the very end. And so thinking about like, how are we going to get water to the pigs? You know, they're some of the most water intensive species to have, basically. So, you know, thinking about things like that when you're getting into it, I think is pretty important too. And also, um, it's easy when you first get started, you're like, oh man, we're going to have 
ducks and quail and, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, all these different species and everything. Um, but then it's like, okay, what, what can you do well with your land? Um, for example, you know, Sheraton Park, they can do beef. We would not be able to do beef very well on our land because we just don't have the pasture. And so to me, I'm like, I'd rather just not even get cows if we can't yeah. raise them yeah. properly. Yeah. Um, but another example is, you know, we do have not a water issue. It's just that, you know, we we laid it out from the beginning. Of course, Josh is, you know, water and sanitation expert. And so we laid it out from the beginning, like, okay, here's how we're going to get water down there. Here's where we're going to capture rainwater to provide the drinking water and the wallow water for the pigs and everything. But, um, you know, the rest of our land is actually pretty dry. And, uh, you know, a friend of ours who lives up in Boone, he has the opposite problem. He has too much water. Right. Uh, he probably, if he dug a hole, it would turn into a pond, right. mm -hmm. basically. Which he's doing pretty much to and, make a duck. And so, it. yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, what species would make sense for him? Probably ducks or something that, you know, water intensive species that, that thrives and having that water. Mm -hmm. So instead of trying to be like, oh, we're going to do everything on our farm. I think that it can be really useful too, to start out like, well, what, what species would make the most sense? Right. And, and, and so what makes sense on our land? And also if we're trying to fit into the local food economy, how do we fit in in a complimentary way? Yeah. And the cool thing that so the cool thing that's been happening is like Sheridan Park will have these these work days. For example, they'll invite a bunch of people to come when they're processing uh, uh, chickens, you know, and they'll get eight or ten people together, and we'll work all day and process like two hundred and fifty chickens or something like that. And then another friend will have something going on; they need help, you know, putting up their fence or whatever. And we'll get a little work team and we'll help them. So there definitely is that spirit of like having these community work days from time to time. We've had people come here and help us with stuff at our place. It's been really great. So um, there's there's definitely a spirit of collaboration that we've experienced so far that's been really nice. And especially like because like Rachel said, we got this place right before the pandemic hit and it was kind of good. I mean, honestly, I felt so fortunate. You know, I think about all these people like locked in their apartments and cities or somewhere having to quarantine and can't do anything. Well, I can go out and do all kinds of stuff outside. I can go cut wood. You know, it was a great place to be stuck during the, the hardest lockdown period of the pandemic. But then after a year or so of that, we're like really itching to get out and make connections with people and stuff. And so really, it's only been about a, a year, year, not even a year and a half where we've started to make these kind of connections in this area. So we still feel really new and we're still getting integrated with all that kind of stuff. But I've been really excited so far to see the potential and to see that even in a place like this, there's kind of a, I don't know if it's a critical mass, but there's definitely like a growing group interest group in this kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super exciting to see that and to be a part of that. And like you say, post pandemic, there seems to be more awareness of that as well. So it's, it really is a, um, an opportunity to to build that community but then also to see the people on the outside that are looking for um, more sustainable products realizing that the um, the national food system is not as bulletproof as maybe we once thought mm -hmm. so let, let me talk about something <clears throat> excuse me you're um yeah, I, I, in some of the pre-screening stuff, we talked about some of the specifics that you guys are experimenting with, and I and I love the analytical mind. Obviously, you got a PhD and you got a doctor here, so you got two, well, actually technically two doctors, right? You have a veterinarian and and a PhD. So I assume there's an analytical approach to a lot of things that you all do. And and one thing you'd mentioned in pre-screening is kind of this testing thing you're doing specifically with your pigs, uh, as it pertains to your land and and paddock size. Do you, do you guys want to explain that to me? Uh, yeah. So I finally got, so when we, when we first set up the pig area, we had it fenced in with just normal permanent fence and everything. And, um, you know, I was aware of, of people using just a single strand electric wire to move pigs around and that sort of thing. And really it was when I saw it at Sheraton park, I was like, Oh, okay, this is amazing. This is kind of blowing my mind. I feel like now I have enough confidence seeing them do it, that I'm going to try to do it myself. So we they also have much larger pigs oh, yeah. than us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our coonie kitties may you know, may get to 200 pounds. No, they're like 250, 250 yeah, 225, like something not, like that. They're not yeah. 
huge hogs by any no, means. No. Um, but Sheraton Park definitely has much, much bigger animals. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. And part of the reason for us starting with Cooney Coonies is one, just being interested in pasture-based pork production. They're one of the, you know, I guess kind of keystone breeds um, in that realm, just, you know, coming from New Zealand and everything. Um, but, but also just our ease of managing them. You know, so if we're like, wow, okay, we see these huge hogs respecting this electric wire, this one strand. Right. We think we can do that with our pigs. Yeah, our pigs are basically like pets. They're not, All you know, awesome. they're not, they're pretty a, a docile breed. They're pretty tame. So it, it gave us the confidence we needed to try it ourselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we just set up a little training pen, put three barrows in it for about five days or so and got them used to the, the electric tape. And then I just made a little paddock and 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 let them run out into that. And then what I, the thing I'm interested in. So the way that we want to try to 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 use pigs on our land is like I was saying. You know the place was disused uh, and overgrown, and you know a lot of work. At, you know as your experience with your place of like clearing land and kind of putting it through some kind of a process of ecological succession that gets it to a, the kind of agro ecosystem that you're imagining. You know. And I'm thinking like this sort of savanna style, like sparsely forested paddock with good, you know, uh, forage grasses growing beneath it. And I think we can kind of transition some sections of our land into that kind of thing. And so, you know, the the, the high dollar approach will be like, whatever, get a skid steer and a track hoe and go out and just tear everything out and then kind of put it all back, you know, the way you want it or whatever. But we're thinking, okay, the cheap way, it goes a little slower, but the idea is to use the pigs to go through to clear a lot of the overgrowth and to till everything up and to kind of get things into a good state where then we can come through, selectively cut trees that we want to take for firewood and kind of clean it up and then sow some forage and stuff behind that and then move them on. And so the question for me is, okay, well, how long is the right amount of time? If you have X number of pigs on Y square feet of space about how long are they going to be there until you're like, okay, this site is sort of prepped enough for the next step and I want to move them along. So basically, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I have no idea. Right. So we put them there and just like once a week, I'll go and make a little video and say, okay, let's look at what's going on here. How much is this rooted up? Is it torn up too much? Is it about right or whatever? And so we're at about week four right now. And um it's looking to be it's right now it's about a time i think okay this is maybe a good time to think about moving them we're going to get some rain the next couple of days part of it i think is going to turn into a bit of a mud hole mm. i'm not super worried about it i kind of want to see it get over overdone so i can see what overdone looks like um but yeah it's it's just it's i mean it's a it's not even really a controlled experiment it's kind of mostly just for our record keeping but also I'll put it out on YouTube or something just because other people might find it interesting or helpful if they're trying to make some estimates about this kind of thing. So yeah, it's really just making an observation of the paddock and when do we move them along and, you know, uh, try to follow that up with um, some clear, you know, clear the brush and whatever. I mean, they might dig up an old uh, laptop computer or something out of the woods, you know, you never know. Um, <laughs> but get that kind of stuff out of there and then start moving it through this process of ecological succession towards, um, you know, a kind of, savannah like place that maybe the sheep and goats could graze there or you know would offer some other opportunities maybe even just a place to like say okay here we're going to have our area for we're going to inoculate oak logs and leave them in the forest and try to start growing shiitake mushrooms you know yeah. so i'm thinking about like these little sort of agroecology research projects that could go into like these little nooks and crannies of the farm, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I think that's great. And, and I like what you said, that's being able to read the, uh, the, the results and kind of knowing, okay, this is what, this is what overgrazed or overrooted looks like. And then mm -hmm. have those, just have those ideas and those baselines. Like you said, this isn't something you can necessarily pick up and, and sit down on another farm because of just the, just the variations you run into, but for you all, you know, observing what the animals are doing on the property and just knowing, okay, when we move over here, then I can start to manage. And man, as soon as we start to manage and we keep good notes, then we can can really uh, you know, move along quickly with the development plan we have. And like you said, you know, Savannah style or silvopasture style where <clears throat> you're going to clear out X amount. You're like, oh, wow. Okay. Now I know based on what I've seen in the last year, different seasons, different uh, you know, results with uh, the pigs in different areas, then we know 
if we're going to ramp up scalability in this, if we're going to increase our herd size, then it gives you at least a starting point where so many of us, and I, I fall into this crowd where I just it brought pigs in. It's like, okay, well, I think I'm just going to put them here. Well, now I'm going to put them here. And and it took me a while to figure out, hey, you need to really uh, kind of watch and analyze what's going on there uh, to make smarter decisions as you go forward. Yeah. And I think that's important just knowing how to do that process because um, everyone's going to have to do it for their own system. You know, your animals are going to be different than our animals. They're going to be at different life stages. And I think for pigs in particular, it's really difficult to estimate how much nutrition they're actually getting from foraging and rooting around. You know, obviously they're eating grubs and bugs and things that are providing them minerals and, and nutrients that, you know, the feed would otherwise be potentially providing, you know, obviously I, I from my standpoint, I think it's much richer for them to have that dietary enrichment and not to mention the you know behavioral enrichment of being able to forage but it it's not as easy it's not as cut and dried with uh pigs as it is say with a grazing animal mm. where you can measure the grass the height of the grass estimate you know their their uh dry matter intake or just you know the the intake of forage over a certain amount of acres, you know, that that's definitely something that we do in the ruminant world when we're looking at, you know, pasture-based grazing mm -hmm. is you can, you can actually estimate, okay, I think I can leave them here this many days right. based on what my grass looks like. Yeah. But yeah. I feel like with pigs, it's a little more difficult because, you know, you're not seeing everything they're eating. I have no idea what those pigs are eating <laughs> exactly. most of the time. Yeah. I, sometimes Especially I don't even know that they should be eating it. <laughs> um, but, you know, they I, I definitely have seen them, you know, getting grubs and beetles and all kinds of stuff. And so just uh, balancing that with their ration, you know, mm -hmm. um, seeing, you know, do they look like they're starving. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Cooney Cooney's act like they're starving all the time, but, <laughs> right. you know, measure, looking at their body condition, you know, looking at how aggressively they're foraging, you know, if they're not finding things as much, you know, they may be wanting more grain or, or you know, that kind of thing. So just kind of yeah. like figuring out, and it always changes, right? Because different seasons too, exactly. their life stage yeah. changes, seasons change. I mean, I feel like just knowing how to, observe and how to do that kind of uh process of of like experimentation or, or just observation is pretty important if you're going to do this type of system because i don't think we could write a chart that said here's how long you put the pigs here you know right. that's not really unfortunately as, as nice as that would be that's not really something that we can do. Yeah. While we're on this topic about pig nutrition, Troy, I have a question for you and actually any of the listeners that might know this, this is something I'm interested in trying to find out more information right now. So I have been reading a little bit since we have sheep and goats, I've been reading about the beneficial effects of them grazing on Lespediza. It has anti-worm properties and we have some growing on some real marginal parts of our of our pastures and they go through there from time to time we rotate them around with electric netting so they get some of that in their diet we've had amazingly awesome luck with not needing to deworm sheep and goats even when we sometimes would get animals from another farm that needed some worm treatment like right when they got here but then after that they've been good they have babies i haven't needed any deworming as far as i can tell our last herd check and like a month ago nobody needed deworming and i think grazing on some of the lespediza is part of uh what that's about and the question that i had is um does it have those anti-worm properties for pigs because i because so and the left the lespediza that we have growing here is like the kind the soil conservation kind that's kind of stemmy and it's maybe not as palatable although our animals will nibble on it there's a company in alabama that sells seed of lespediza that's a, a variety i guess that is more palatable as for sheep and goat grazing for this purpose as a natural deworming kind of forage and i'm like that's awesome i want to get some of that and start putting that in strips of our pasture around but i was also and i talked a little bit to our county extension agent and all he's found so far is that like yeah you know people that do pasture pigs they say yeah pigs will eat it or whatever they have a little bit of information that they'll graze it but maybe you know about this. 
you know, does it have anti-warming effects on pigs too? You know, I, I haven't, I haven't read anything that would point in that direction. Uh, and I assume you're talking about the Chinese Lespedeza that that's actually classified as an invasive, correct? Yeah. Is it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah. So it's, it's, it was introduced for, like you said, for, um, uh, erosion mitigation and uh, bank stabilization really kind of heavy in the mining uh, world. Yeah. That's why we see it so much through Appalachia. But yeah. you know, I I haven't I haven't explored that as far as the deworming goes. I, I know like we deal with. I don't know that I have any of it here on our farm, but I have tons and tons of, of stilt grass. So I've I've had to explore that. The pigs love the stilt grass. They'll eat it. Um, uh, you know, ferociously, they'll, they'll, they'll tear it up. But um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's really interesting. That, that makes me want to look into that. I, I do not know if, if Lespedeza has uh, natural warming properties. I know, I mean, and then when you get into that and say, yeah, it does or no, it doesn't, then you get into the whole debate about all of that. Like, you know, you know people still want to die on the hill that, you know, pumpkins are an incredible natural warmer and the other people say, you're an idiot. They, you know, they don't do anything for, for, uh, you know, as far as warm uh, uh, control. So I, yeah, I think there's a lot of, of debate back and forth on this. And I'm sure this, this probably has some debate as well. And it'd be interesting to see somebody that's actually done some legitimate research on that. Yeah. I haven't found any information for pigs, but it seems like with cattle, it seems to have those properties and sheep and goats is good for that. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's kind of just a question that's been in the back of my mind. And maybe somebody listening to the podcast will be like, oh, yeah, I know. I found a study or something, but I just haven't come across anything yet that says one way or the other. Yeah, no, that's good. Let's let's use this resource uh, for its intent. So if anybody listening knows anything about this to this degree, uh, obviously email me, Troy, at redtoolhouse.com or post on the uh, Pastured Pig Facebook group. And we'll get this conversation going because it would be interesting to explore this. And especially for those of us in Appalachia, because I know it's all over the place. So it's if one of those things that um, if if you happen to have pigs grazing in an area that has a lot of Lespedeza and you're like, well, you know, I'm really not. I still worm my deworm my pigs once a year, but I, I haven't really noticed much of a parasite load at all. Um, then you know, that would be anecdotal evidence. But at least we could uh, get a conversation started there with that. Um, but no, that that's interesting. I, I got to say, I have not heard that. Um, I had not run into that yet. But you know, the the veterinarian in the room may be able to speak to that to some degree when it comes to a ruminant versus uh, an omnivore, and and you know, is yeah. there something different there that would not allow that to be as effective for pigs? Well, I guess like from my standpoint, um, I'm more apt to try it with the small ruminants than I am with pigs. And honestly, the reason why is because some of the pig parasites are zoonotic, um, which means that people can get sick from them. Yep. Um, whereas like the small ruminant ones are really not a threat to us health wise. It's more that we run into issues with, you know, go sheep and goats dying and, and from the worms and the dewormers aren't working like they used to. So we have to go to alternative strategies for for management just because we have so many issues with worms in that species in particular. But with the pigs, I'm not saying that they're not an issue for the animals themselves because they are. <laughs> I actually think they're more of an issue with the pastured management because they are having access to, you know, earthworms and, and some of the peritonic species that um, are part of the worm's life cycle, basically. Yeah. Um, the same reason why, you know, having your goats out raising pasture, they're going to get more worms than if you have them in a barn, in a dry lot or something like that. That's actually what we do to help them get over the worms is bring them in, you know, and confine them. Mm -hmm. But with the pigs, I'm definitely more hesitant to rely on the, you know, something that's not been studied early oh, yeah. and you know just because i don't want to risk it from a human health standpoint you mm -hmm. know i'm still going to deworm my pigs yeah. um, so that's that's kind of where i stand on it i think is that i need to see more data i need to see more research and i just don't know of anything specifically right um i know that the the really good route of course small room really more my um 
my realm of expertise, I guess, you know, I obviously I studied pigs and poultry in vet school as well, but, um, you know, my heart's always been with the sheep and goats, um, but wormx.info is kind of the, the parasite consortium, um, for small ruminants. And they have done a lot of research on lespedeza and, um, copper wire particle boluses and that kind of thing. Um, but I'm just not aware of as much thorough research with the pigs right yeah um just because i guess you know part of it is that our dewormers still work in pigs for the most part Mm -hmm. right right um and not to mention that most commercial hog production they don't have issues with worms so whereas you know sheep and goats are primarily you know hobbyist small farm kind of species so they're more at risk risk and we're dealing with it a lot more and there's a lot more overstocking that kind of thing yeah yeah no i think you made a good point there that you know without any hardcore data that you know if you happen to have a lot of lespedes in the area and you've got pigs grazing on that do not cease your existing uh, deworming regimen uh, just maybe the lespedes as a backup if in, in, in case there is actual value to that. That, that doesn't mean you know, discount or disregard your, your regular um, regimen, but maybe that's just right. a backup, a support opportunity there. And it's the same in small ruminants too. I feel like, um, you know, I'm obviously in favor of alternative methods, but I wouldn't totally give up the idea of using dewormers yeah. in our you know, obviously, if they're really, really sick, I'm going to treat them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well, all right. Well, I want to be sensitive to your all's time. So I want to I want to bring the conversation around here and, and, and draw closer to a close. But let, let's talk about future plans. What is um, what do you guys think in the next five years on Magpie Hollow Farm? What are you all what are you all thinking about? Well, at the moment right now, the number one thing that we're thinking about is probably within about 10 days we're gonna have a son <laughs> rachel's about ready to pop right now yeah so out of the next five years is going to be the first five years of our son's life <laughs> our first kid yeah so that's that's like a, a big that's another bit of livestock that we're adding to our right. our, our our creature menagerie out here um I, I think uh you know apart from that i think continuing to grow slowly and incrementally. Um, uh, I think that we could potentially get into selling some lamb at some of the farmer's markets. We haven't done it yet, but I think we could grow into that space a little bit. Hmm. We have, uh, we're connected with some friends in the the local or the regional uh, Nigerian community Hmm. who are really interested in our goats. And we've already sold one of them to a Nigerian friend and they like to process them themselves. And so back in August, we had ourselves a, a traditional Nigerian style goat slaughter right, <laughs> right out in the front of our house. And, uh, and uh, so I think that we might do a little side project of raising some goats for, for holidays, for, uh, for the, our Nigerian friends or for people from other cultures and that sort of thing. But I think it's really just like adding little incremental things as we go, building up slowly, uh, trying to keep the mistakes uh, small rather than bite off too much and end up making a big mistake. Um, yeah. And I don't, I, what, what, what do you think, babe? It'd be nice to have a tractor. Oh yeah. In five years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was something I wanted to mention earlier is, uh, we don't have any equipment, mm. um, <clears throat> which is the other reason to start small. I mean, we were lucky we had a livestock trailer here when we bought the place, but, um, we have very, very minimal equipment. We did just buy a zero turn mower um, to help with pasture management, but basically our pigs are our skid steers. Um, And so we don't, you know, we don't have a tractor, but um, it'd be nice in five years to have a tractor and maybe maybe even start um, doing some small small scale baling of mm-hmm. hay and, and straw and things like that mm-hmm. um, to try to bring that in ourselves instead of having to pay the, you know, the steep prices for everything. So yeah. I guess that's also a big, pretty big thing that would level up our operation is, is having a little bit more equipment and infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. You make that investment when it's uh financially feasible versus going out and just acquiring additional debt. That, that's, that's always wise to, to manage that properly. 
maybe that's maybe that's good news for listeners that are like just trying to start out and they think oh i gotta get a tractor no no you can you can you you know you don't have to jump right in with all these giant equipment purchases and maybe and maybe never have those purchases depending on you know how you're managing things you know but at the same time you know there's some little bits of some things that we bought or little bits of equipment or this tool or that tool that it's just like yeah i mean that was you know we bought a, a nice trailer for hauling whatever lumber or you know, straw, hay, whatever. And, uh, that was a, an extremely well worth it purchase, you know, and then having this mower to help maintain the pastures with the sheep and goats chunk of money, but like, wow, that was a great purchase. But our approach is definitely not to, like I said, show up and just start, start throwing money at stuff, but try to figure out what we really need. Um, you know, I'm a huge advocate of borrowing equipment. Like, so we don't have a tractor, but from time to time I'll use one cause I'll borrow one from my neighbor and use his for specific jobs. And that's been hugely helpful because I don't have a ton of experience with this kind of stuff, but like to get a sense of like, how does this work? What do we need? If we do eventually make a big purchase, we want to feel like, okay, we've really tried out different things and we've zeroed in on like, okay, this piece of equipment will really do exactly what we need. And, you know, that's not something I'm going to know up front, but, you know, being able to borrow stuff from our neighbors and have their help with things has been huge and also giving us a better idea of like, what we might want in the future if we have the cash to, to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. All right. So let me, let me close with this question then. So uh, it's a question I ask everybody and, and that is um, what do you guys find most enjoyable or what do you like the most about raising your pigs out in the woods or on pasture? Um, I think just seeing how happy they are. I mean, they, they're stoked to be out there. I mean, even just moving them out of their little pen where they were all together for a while over to, you know, this new place, they're just like, uh, this is like a huge playground. And to me, that's what makes it all worth it is seeing how happy they are. Cause that's kind of the reason why I'm interested in this from, you know, an animal health and welfare standpoint is that it makes me feel better knowing that our animals have, you know, pretty much all good days, except one, maybe two bad days if they're boys, Mm -hmm. but you know, (laughs) otherwise they're, you know, the, they're happy until, you know, the day that they are slaughtered and that's how I think it should be. Yeah. I would definitely echo that as just to seeing the pig act like a pig and seem like it's enjoying itself and have a good healthy setup. And then the other thing is thinking about their potential, you know, for, for, uh, land management, for managing space into transition, um, you know, overgrown areas that seem like not good for anything into, into some other useful kind of agro ecosystems. And, you know, the fact that you can get it done really without burning any fossil fuels, you know, without any loud equipment and, and gas powered motors. And, uh, at the same time, the animals are healthy and happy. And, you know, you get pork chops and bacon at the end. So what's not to like about that? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Good answers. Definitely. Well, I definitely appreciate you all coming on the podcast. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find you on the Internet? Uh, Probably the best places are our Substack newsletter site. It's all free to sign up for. It's Magpie Hollow Farm, one word, uh, com, And uh, that's a good place to um, see what's up with us and to be able to contact us. And the main series that we've been doing this year uh, on that newsletter site is something we call then and now. And it's basically like, at, uh, you know, once a month, uh, I'll go back through my photos, say from like October, 2020, October, 2021, October, 2022, and just go through and pick out some of the best photos that illustrate how things have changed or different projects on the farm or things that we've learned or, you know, mistakes that we've made or whatever. And a lot of it for me is just kind of a, it's kind of a therapy because as you know, like there's always a million things to do. It's just, and I'm walking around and I'm doing jobs and I'm seeing like five more jobs I need to do and it can kind of get overwhelming. And a lot of times I don't take the time to stop and say, Hey, you know, we've really done a lot. We've really accomplished a lot. We've made a lot of changes here and I need to take time to appreciate it. So I'll just sit down once a month and look at old photos and think, oh yeah, I remember when it was like that. And then we built this thing or we did that, or it looked really bad then it looks good now or whatever. And so I think that's kind of an, um, that's the main feature that we've been doing really this year with the newsletter, but yeah, you'll get to see. And, um, 
and it probably would be a good way for people to who have uh, comments and feedback and criticisms and things like that to say, oh, you know what you did there? Well, you should really do it differently. Do it this way or that way. And we get a lot of helpful hints and tips and stuff through that. So yeah. I'd encourage people to check that out. Great, great. You all also have a YouTube channel as well, don't you? Yes, we do. I mean, and pretty much like the YouTube channel is I've just put the video there and then I put it on the subject newsletter so it's really just a place to dump the videos gotcha. but you can you can find the youtube channel through the sub the the magpie hollow farm Substack thing maybe in the future that'll get that feature will get built out a little bit more i mean what you've done with your podcast is awesome i'm excited to go back through i've listened to some of them already but man there's just so much great content there and you know we're just 20 years behind you but we want to try to do something <laughs> like that too great awesome Good deal. Good deal. Well, I appreciate you all coming on the podcast again. And, and thank you so much for taking your time. And and Rachel, uh, God bless you on your pending farrowing date. I hope things go well. <laughs> yeah. We got our farrowing crate all set up. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Don't, yeah, don't let her crush him. <laughs> we got some dewormer for the baby. You know, he'll be good to go. That's right. Get him in the dirt uh, as soon as possible and often get that immune system built up. There you go. No, I love it. Well, congratulations on that. that. That's awesome. That's definitely a game changer. And it's good to have some extra uh, farm hands in the waiting there. So uh, get him out and get him to work. Well, I pray you all have a great week. And again, I thank you for coming on the show. Well, I really appreciate Josh and Rachel taking the time to talk and, and congratulate them on their upcoming child. And, and that'll be fun. That's a whole new line of livestock to keep track of. <laughs> but uh, no, that's very cool. Very exciting. Uh, love their uh, love their energy. Well, as uh, as I always mention, if you would like to be on the podcast, simply go to thepasturedpig.com or redtoolhouse.com. Use our forms there. Just reach out to me, do a little pre-screening info. And uh, we'll get you scheduled. If if you've reached out to me and you haven't heard from me, um, I'm not neglecting you. I promise. What I'm trying to do is I try to do all these things in batches. And when I sit down and, and set my schedule, I try to look, okay, if I've got three or four interviews ready to go, then I try to just line all those up within a week or so. Uh, so please be patient with me. If you think maybe I've gone too long and haven't responded, by all means, ping me again. You will not upset me if you say, hey, man, I sent you this a while back and I haven't heard from you. If it's been more than a month and you haven't heard from me, then then yeah, something's dropped through the cracks there. Like I said, I have yet, knock on wood here, I've yet to get anyone reach out to say, I want to be on the podcast and I have any red flags to say, nah, I don't think that's going to work. Um, now I've just probably you know, jinxed myself there. But anyway, uh, reach out to me if that's the case. Also, please consider supporting Patreon. We've had a couple, um, quite a several actually, join here recently and and I, one of these days, I need to just figure out a way to do an episode where I just thank every single one of you. Like I said, there's about 36 of you right now. And man, I, I can't thank you enough. I know that um, you're partying with that money, especially if we're all into farming. You know, every single dime can go to feed or fence or something. So it, it does not fall short on me that you guys are partying with some of that hard-earned money to um, to kind of give me a digital tip to say thanks, Troy, for for the work that you do. So I, I hope that's the case. And, and I hope that you all still continue to find value in what we're doing here. And uh, just appreciate any feedback and any suggestions and how to make it even better. And um, that's what we'll do. We'll just try to keep making it better as we go into this new year. Well, again, I pray everyone have a great week and I really appreciate everybody listening. Y'all take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.